And welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Going for Two, presented by Home Field Apparel. I am your host, the publisher of the Extra Points newsletter, Matt Brown. I'm joined here by my colleague and friend, Brian Fisher. How, how you holding up, man? Uh, sounds like I'm, I'm doing a little bit better than you. Yeah. Uh, for, for those that uh, have not uh, been following along on, on the Extra Points newsletter and uh, or, or your Twitter account for, for up to the minute updates on your health. Very, very important. Yeah, no, I, I, I missed a couple of days and uh, of newsletter writing, which I almost never do. And I'm, I'm kind of picking myself up right now because right after the NIL summit, can't confirm if I caught it at the summit or at the Atlanta airport, which is probably a place where a lot of diseases are, are shared or somewhere else. I don't know, but I, I did come back and uh, I unfortunately got COVID for the first time. And friends, I do not recommend the experience if you can avoid it. I don't want to get political or partisan. I'm just going to say having COVID is pretty unpleasant. Um, slept for a couple of days and even now, like recording a podcast and just talking for 45 minutes, I could stand to lose a couple of pounds. I'm not that fat. The fact that I'm a little bit winded after just talking for a little bit, I think speaks to the fact that I'm still recovering, uh, from this. So if I am a little slow out of the gates on the mic or on the newsletter for the next couple of days, I, I beg your forgiveness. I'm operating with like half a lung right now, right? But um, I'm. Well, you're, you're you're a champ, you know. You're you're toughing it out. We we appreciate that. I'm sure the audience does. That's that's why they got to subscribe to the Going for Two and Extra Points. So not only to uh, yeah, get yeah. you back on your feet, but uh, catch up on some of the latest uh, when when you do uh, get that that second lung going. That that that. Thank you, Brian. I don't want to use the word hero, but. I, we could, right? It, 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 this isn't exactly a flu game scenario here, but but uh, it, it, it is it is close to it. As I as I stick you know plow through this to try to give people sports content, I am excited about today because one we have a guest, and two we're going to talk about something that's completely different from what everybody else on the internet is talking about right now. I, I spent a lot of time digging through those reader um, and audience feedback surveys. I, I'm, I deeply appreciate it. I got like 780 people responded, which is wonderful. And you know, people saying, hey, listen, we really appreciate all of the EA Sports video game coverage. Great, I'm gonna keep doing that as much as I can. We really appreciate all the conference realignment coverage. Great, I'm not gonna make anything up. That's, you know, that's, uh, that is news cycle dependent, but I'm gonna keep hitting that beat when I can. And, uh, but not everybody loves talking about NIL all the time. Not everybody loves talking about transformation committee or existential crisis in college athletics. So today, I wanted to talk about a book that I read recently. It's called Miracles on the Hardwood. It's by our friend John Gasway at ESPN. And this book, which came out last year, I think, uh, is a history of not just college basketball, but a history of Catholic college basketball. And John, John's argument here is that there's a reason that so many Division I Catholic colleges have historically overperformed on the court relative to their budget and, uh, and, and resources and location. Um, and so this is like the perfect EP kind of book for me, right? It's like it, it, it's a, it hits all, all the, my interest levels. And I thought after I finished this thing in a week, and I, 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 I finished it before I got Rona. So like I had the energy to do other things. I finished it in a week. I was like, oh my God, I got to have John on to talk about this. So today I want to talk about early college basketball. I want to talk about the history in the, of the church and college basketball. I want to talk about Canisius and St. Bonaventure and Villanova and Georgetown and University of San Francisco and, and some of these things here. And I want to get into the weeds and I want to completely counter program whatever 
the national talking point is in sports media. Because whatever it is we're, we're angry about right now, we're talking about, I'm pretty sure it's not Bill Russell's San Francisco Dons. Might, might be a fun little change of pace for a bunch of dorks, right? Absolutely. I mean, this is a great trip down memory lane, and I think it's important to get, you know, the added context of, of college athletics. I mean, I, I think everybody is so football centric, and obviously that, that is a big driver of college athletics nowadays. But yeah, at the, at the end of the day, college basketball played a huge role in, in promoting the NCAA for, for decades and, and making sure that, uh, you know, really a lot of regional uh, schools became national schools, but national brands. And, uh, you know, a lot of, I mean, you can't really write the history with, of, of NCAA athletics without telling the story of, of the Georgetowns of the world, right? And who really put themselves on the map using their college basketball programs. And, and it, it, it's a fun topic to get into, uh, certainly with John, but but I think just uh, making sure that you kind of get the, the background and the history and the context of things is certainly huge to not only understanding what happened, but uh, really providing some insight into also where this kind of giant enterprise is going as well. Yeah, it, it, if you want to better under, I mean, we, of course, to, to understand the history of college sports informs you about the big battles about amateurism and academics and, and all those other things. And there's some of that here in this book too. But um, mostly I thought it was just fun. It, it, not necessarily like a, a big takeaway that's going to leave you super informed for the battles ahead. There is some of that, but it was fun. Um, so without further ado, let's bring in John here. Let's have fun for a minute. Let's remember some guys. Let's, let's learn a little bit about Catholicism. Let's learn a little bit about the history of college basketball and analytics and, and weird stories from the beginning. Let's bring on an expert here real quick. Wonderful. John, thank you so much for, for taking some time to chat with us. It is a pleasure for us to talk about something that has absolutely nothing to do with name, image, likeness here for a minute. And it's, it's a pleasure to talk to somebody who uh, I think has such a unique perspective on a, on a, on a different sport. So th thanks for taking the time. Thank you for having me. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to be here. John, I want to I want to start here. You know, um, we were just talking about this off air. One of the things, one of the reasons I was so excited to read this book is I'm a college football writer at, at heart, and uh, you know, digging into college basketball history is a little bit like learning another language. You know, particularly for some of the very early parts of 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 college basketball history. And I know you're somebody that really likes to use advanced stats and numbers to help tell stories and help illustrate what's happening because as a fan maybe you're just watching the ball and it's so many of these early stories you're talking about in the 30s and 40s and 50s we don't have tape. You can't chart plays and the box scores are bad and even some of the newspaper accounts cuz I try to look into this too are, are pretty unreliable. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about how you even began to wrap your arms around some of these early NCAA tournaments or pre-tournament play, knowing that getting the data that you're so used to, it would have been so hard to do? It was uh, both frustrating and a bit thrilling. It was kind of a detective chase uh, to try and figure out questions like how good you know, was Bill Russell really? Obviously, he was incredible. But I mean, you know, is he the greatest college player ever? That's, you know, it's, it's a possibility, but we can't we can't really break apart that question. Even if they had simply charted how many minutes a player, <laughs> that would be a huge help uh, to know. We could do a lot with that just if we knew how many minutes he played. But uh, there were a lot of things that were late in coming that we take for granted now that are fantastic. Uh, I was uh, amused and thrilled in the research of the book to come across the word assist used in quotes, you know, in the, in the newspaper story, yeah. they said, and this is what an assist is. And, and that was uh, from like the late 1940s. It was a, it was a guy at, at Madison Square Garden uh, saying, this is, this is a handy thing. And we track these and other people thought that was kind of cool. And that, that caught on. 
uh, rebounds, uh, same kind of deal <laughs> for a long time. People didn't think that was particularly uh, important to track. And uh, strangely, the, the, uh, the glory days of rebounds were the early 1950s. Uh, the games were fast paced. The shooting was absolutely atrocious. And uh, there were records set, including by a major figure in the book, uh, that will never be approached. Or I mean, Oscar Shibway couldn't come within uh, three uh, lengths of, of these records. I mean, 20 plus rebounds a game by individuals, just crazy. Um, so it was, uh, it, was, it was a fascinating uh, process to go through. And it's interesting because the book goes right up to the present day and suddenly, you know, you, you come through a curtain and bam, uh, we, we know, <laughs> we think we know everything or we know a lot more and everything's normal. But it was a large, uh, a, a long uh, struggle to get to that point. I, because it, it, this isn't a book that's just about the evolution of basketball. It's not just a book about the intersection of faith and basketball. And I do want to talk about that in a little bit, but it's, it, 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 it is a little bit of an evolution of the game itself and how we talk about the game. As somebody who I'm sure had to go through a lot of, of newspaper archives and like yearbooks and, 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 you know, contemporary depictions of everything, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm curious, you know, if you were a very smart basketball fan in like the 1950s or early 1960s, what what was some of the vocabulary or terms that, that you would gravitate towards to try and and go beyond just raw points to talk about something like somebody now might talk about efficiency or a Ken Palm statistic or something? Those clearly that wasn't part of the deal when when San Francisco was dominating everybody. What would have been the thinking man's basketball vocabulary around then? Um, they used a different vocabulary to try and reach the same uh, points. I mean, they knew that <laughs> it was important to uh, to make their shots, uh, but it was, of course, I mean, for starters, there was no three-point shot. So it was just as simple as getting as close to the basket as you can and those uh, before you shoot. And you see that in the movie Hoosiers with Norman Dale. <laughs> He's saying, no, 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 you know, a certain number of passes uh, the three-point shot just changed that. The best shot that you have on the possession could come at the very beginning of the possession, you know, even if you're not right next to the basket. So yeah. they were aware of that. They were doing the best they could. And to their credit, there were smart, uh, very smart uh, coaches right from the start, including, I think you used the word efficiency. So I think of Pete Newell, who made his name mainly at, at Cal, a uh, big influence on, on Bob Knight. And uh, he was uh, playing uh, San Francisco and knew that, you know, they didn't have a, a ghost of a chance. Uh, he was coaching Cal and he said the, the key is to be as efficient as possible. And in an era before the shot clock, that just meant they held on to the ball. And um, it was at a time when San Francisco was trying to have an undefeated season. Uh, it was this game was recognized rightly as the best chance that San Francisco was going to lose. They were playing at Cal. It was on the road. Uh, bandbox uh, uh, arena, uh, fans going crazy. A lot of anticipation. It was televised locally at a time when that was hard to do. Um, and tickets uh, were priced up. And then Cal held the ball. And it was a huge scandal because <laughs> the game, you know, the, the score was nothing. Uh, San Francisco did win. They were being booed the whole time. Uh, and it was a big deal. And so that's what they meant by efficient was, you know, hold the ball. 
Um, it's been fascinating, or it was fascinating, to learn about the evolution of the game and, and uh, how things like the, the three-point shot were debated, the shot clock, uh, quarters versus halves. Those, those all are covered in the book, and they, they've all got a really weird backstories to them. So it was fun for me, uh, just as a researcher, to learn those stories. Sure. You, I mean, you mentioned, uh, obviously, the, just the kind of having t- a game on television. Obviously, that, that was uh, a bit unique for, for a lot of, the, you know, major college basketball history. I, I'm just curious, if for, for those that are listening in, uh, if you can maybe put into context just, just what the sport was in terms of national versus regional and, and just how intensely uh, focused it was on, on really your own backyard. Very much so. And uh, that was true of recruiting. Uh, that was true of, uh, you know, where you got your your coaches from, you know, they, they tended to stick in the same place. Uh, the And the game uh, was more regionally distinct. I mean, you, you saw styles that just stayed in certain parts of the country, whereas now, uh, of course, everything is is much uh, much more free flowing in terms of influences and uh, and imitations of what's successful. But uh, you're exactly right, and um, the example that that comes to mind. Well, there are plenty of examples, but um, a guy named Frank McGuire kind of broke that mold and and uh, raised some eyebrows by winning the. 1957 uh, national championship at North Carolina. He's covered extensively in the book because his entire career before that time was at St. John's, uh, both as a player and as a very successful head coach. Uh, North Carolina uh, hired him at a time when the Tar Heels weren't particularly associated uh, with basketball success, frankly, and uh, he brought immediate returns. They did win the title in 1957. He was a native New Yorker. Almost all of the players on that team were from the greater New York area. And uh, people took note of that and said, hmm, uh, players from a very different place. And I tell the story in the book about the parents of these players were concerned. This is the 1950s, and they were concerned about their sons going down south to Baptist country, you know, and these are good Catholic boys and what's going to happen to them. And Frank McGuire had to assure the parents, you know, he was going to convert the entire state of North Carolina to Catholicism, and it's okay. Uh, So that set a pattern, and you started to see more uh, national kind of recruiting like that. Obviously and famously, you know, Wilt Chamberlain uh, traveled all the way from Philadelphia to Kansas, and that caused all kinds of uh, suspicion and tongue wagging. Oh, they must have, you know, paid him a, a king's ransom, and he always denied that. I thought rather convincingly, and <laughs> he just wanted to get to a, a school that was really good and good at basketball and get away from from his home and have some fun. Uh, so that really began to uh, break loose in the 1950s, and uh, it it quickly caught on as an idea. You know, so kind of speaking of this of this hyper-regionalist idea, you know, kind of to, to dovetail into one of the, the core theses of the book, one, one of the dynamics that I thought was particularly interesting is how you d- described how there were, you know, kind of two schools of thought where you had the, 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 the parish school of thought and the plains school of thought. If I'm understanding this dynamic correctly, and with the plains, you had, you know, leaders at schools like Indiana and at Kansas, at Ohio State for a little while in the early part. And then with the, the parish idea, with, with leadership being uh, you know, concentrated in New York City, but not exclusively, but a much more urban, uh, uh, you know, parts, parts of, of college basketball, where that was also a power center. Uh, for our readers who haven't had a chance to read the book, I'm wondering if you can maybe elaborate a little bit on what that dichotomy meant 
and uh, you know how that shaped the, the 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 history of the sport, or at least in the formative stages between you know, and, and sometimes both both parties may have been both been Catholic, but clearly had very different worldviews, uh, not just about the world in general, but about college basketball. Right, and uh, it's it really describes two tendencies and two traditions within the game that definitely you know, overlap and, and merge in all kinds of interesting ways. But uh, we know them when we see them. And when we, when we see, you know, Al McGuire wearing a loud jacket at Marquette in the 70s, you know, that's that's parish. And all these, <laughs> yeah. All these wacky quips and the, and the writers are loving it. You know, that's parish. Uh, when we see, you know, Bob Knight at the exact same time, you know, they were both at the peak of their careers at the same moment. Bob Knight at Indiana, uh, we know that's that's Plains, you know, Fog Allen at Kansas, uh, same thing. And uh, that it was a healthy rivalry. Uh, the NCAA tournament itself was started because uh, figures like uh, Fog Allen, among others, were concerned about this new NIT uh, tournament that was being played in Madison Square Garden, in New York City, with all these, you know, Catholic schools. And we, we've got to have something as the NCAA that's, uh, you know, they, they thought the NIT was corrupt because it was it was it was for profit. It was a promotional venture and they made a lot of money. Uh, Madison Square Garden was one of the largest arenas in the country at the time, and they, they made a, a, a ton of money. The NCAA said, well, let's let's have our own thing. And, uh, you know, there was a there was a tense rivalry there. At the beginning, uh, initially, a lot of Catholic schools weren't even members of the NCAA itself. And then once once they said, "Okay, we'll join the NCAA, uh, they still held off on joining conferences. That, too, was seen as kind of a, you know, a Plains tradition thing where you have these these conferences. Not always, but uh, generally speaking. And then, of course, it was, you know, Dave Gabbett's great insight to finally build the the super conference with uh, heavy but not total Catholic representation in the East that people have been talking about at that point for for 20 years. So, um, you know, they're they're not, you know, these borders aren't sharp. And as I say in the book, the state of North Carolina is where things get completely messy because, uh, you know, North Carolina State made its name, yeah, by hiring a, a famous Indiana, you know, high school basketball coach, a legend, Everett Case, and uh, that that's as plains as you can get. And North Carolina said, well, we'll get this guy from St. John's, you know, uh, Frank McGuire, Parrish, and, you know, what is, so what, what do you do with the blue bloods in the state of North Carolina? They're kind of neither nor, you know, uh, but there are tendencies and you still see them to this day and whenever Villanova you know goes to the lead eight or the final four or wins it all you hear everybody ah Catholic basketball yes yes you know and, and you know um, naming all of the the great names individual and teams from the past it's, it's a very uh, coherent and readily recognized uh, strain in the game of college basketball so I'd like to talk a little bit more about Part of why that is, and and part of you know part of the reason this this dynamic is fascinating to me as somebody that you know primarily covered college football and grew up in that world is the idea of a Saint Bonaventure or a Canisius or some very small, modestly funded program just getting eight guys to really buy in and achieving at a very high level. That's impossible in college football. It's like literally the very first thing in your book, if if I recall correctly. So like that's it's fascinating that this is different, but. You know, part of the core thesis of, of the book, if, if I'm, you know, correct here, is that 
throughout all of the history of, of college basketball, Catholic schools in particular have enjoyed at times um, a disproportionate success relative to their budgets and, and resources. One of the reasons if, uh, that, you know, that I took away from reading this is that not exclusively, but by and large, many of these Catholic schools were uh, quicker to integrate than many of their secular peers and even some of their uh, fellow religious institutions, you know, per, per, certainly compared to Baptist or, you know, Latter-day Saint institutions. Uh, you know, uh, were there any other reasons other than being more flexible to have a diverse uh, group of athletes and coaches that, you, th- that these schools saw success? Or were there, was there something more theological or cultural to it in your estimation? Well, certainly uh, opening the the doors of, quote unquote, major college basketball to, you know, the best players, no matter who they are and what race they happen to be. That was a that that was pivotal. Uh, that was big. Uh, that uh, was definitely uh, the source of San Francisco's success in the 1950s. Uh, that was behind the championship that Loyola Chicago won in 1963. Uh, Loyola Chicago famously was uh, the first in December 1962, uh, the first. Um, and again, you know, they they used the word major basketball, which was in effect at the time a euphemism for white. I mean, obviously there have been HBCUs uh, <laughs> playing basketball and very well uh, forever. But in terms of quote-unquote major uh, college basketball, Loyola Chicago was the first team to put five black players on the floor at the same time in December 1962. So uh, there were trailblazers uh, in the the Catholic uh, basketball family, but there were trailblazers outside too. Uh, You know, Cincinnati uh, did very well in the early 1960s. Uh, playing more uh, black players who were better than than the opponents, um, and not everybody in uh, the Catholic uh, basketball universe was eager to uh, pick up the same standard. And most ironically, uh, just uh, almost a completely forgotten history. One of the the latest to come to this uh, inclusion was Georgetown of all. <laughs> of all teams, which, um, you know, when John Thompson died and I was on uh, social media, I saw lots of uh, people who came of age, you know, watching the great Thompson. People like us, right? Like growing up in Columbus, I thought this was an HBCU. Right. Exactly. Uh, People on social media saying when I was a kid, I thought Georgetown was an HBCU. And that's just so ironic because, when Georgetown made its initial overtures to hire Thompson, who at the time was a very successful high school coach in the district, uh, Thompson, very Thompson-like, and with complete uh, justice, given what he had experienced, said, why should I believe, he was, of course, from Washington, D.C. originally, said, why should I believe that you're going to hire a black coach in 1972 when I know from my experience you had no time for a black player in 1960, meaning Georgetown didn't recruit him at all. He went to Providence. And he referred to Georgetown as, you know, as a local D.C. resident. He referred to it as that white school up on the hill. Um, but he did, of course, take the job and, and the rest is history. So it's not simply a case where, you know, the Catholics were, were enlightened and, and the other programs were not. But they did enjoy a lot of success by, by making that move uh, sooner than some other competing programs. 
the same kind of uh, cause and effect uh, challenge comes into play with other reasons offered for why Catholic schools are so good at basketball. Um, they emphasize basketball over football. Well, yeah, so so do Duke and Kansas. <laughs> they're not Catholic. Um, they're based in big cities. That's uh, very often the case. But you know, Villanova's had a lot of success in a in a leafy suburban setting right outside a big city. And maybe the basketball program that historically has parlayed, you know, a location in a in a major city the best is is UCLA. I mean, they've got the they've got more national titles than anybody and they're in a really big city. So it's tough to say Catholic schools are good because but it's easy to say, ah, this is Catholic basketball. I mean, it is it is a recognizable identity. Sometimes it's in the very name of a school. Um, sometimes there are priests on the bench and uh, it's just uh, it's a part of the game. And it has been a, a constant thread in that game since the, the very beginning. It's interesting. We, we've been talking nearly 20 minutes here and we have not mentioned maybe the most prominent Catholic university in, in the country in Notre Dame, which obviously has had tremendous success on the football uh, field. And and early on, certainly the, you, you get into it a little bit in, in the book, they did have basketball success. I'm just curious why you kind of think ultimately Notre Dame didn't really kind of translate that and follow some of their peers uh, that, that certainly in the Big East uh, made such an impact. Yeah, um, Notre Dame was arguably maybe the number one basketball uh, program in the country for a solid stretch of the 1930s. And uh, one aggrieved uh, comment that I got on my book from a Notre Dame fan was, you know, I gave short shrift to the 1930s. And I thought the most yeah, Notre thought, Dame shocker, thing shocker. possible, right? And I thought, you know, it's, it's kind of a, it's kind of a convenient uh, starting point when the NCAA tournament starts. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and even even then, there were there were figures within uh, the the uh, sphere that was editing the book who were like, "Come on, come on!" <laughs> yeah, right. I, I know. How dare you disrespect our right. boys get, that beat get, Chicago get twelve to okay, nine? Get, get to the TV era. Come on, let's go, let's go. So I, I couldn't I couldn't please uh, both uh, both audiences there, but uh, they were they were great in the '30s, and the there is a soundbite in the book that did make it that uh, you know. Um, the great Kentucky coach, uh, Adolph Rupp, you know, said he learned how to, and he, he built Kentucky <laughs> and they've been Kentucky ever since. He said he learned what he needed by watching Notre Dame and Notre Dame was beating Rupp early in his career. I think, uh, seven straight years, they always played and he always lost. So Notre Dame was good. Um, they didn't uh, necessarily sustain that success. I think the, uh, the ardent, uh, anti-conference stance that Notre Dame used to have in basketball as well as in football uh, didn't necessarily do them any favors in, in sustaining that success. Um, they always uh, adopted new rules at the same time as the Big Ten, played a lot of Big Ten teams, identified with the Big Ten, but obviously were never going to join the Big Ten. And I'm not sure that kind of uh, neither uh, nor uh, programmatic stance uh, did them any favors either. And then in, in recent years, of course, they've, they have had success. They were great uh, many, several times uh, under Digger Phelps. They famously, you know, beat UCLA and, and uh, Bill Walton in a, in a classic game. Um, they did reach a, a final four in the late seventies. So, you know, they, they've had their moments and, uh, 
and I, for one, will always remember that that was a classic Elite Eight game in 2015 against Kentucky. I mean, uh, it's rare when my entire uh, family, uh, children, spouse, my parents, and everybody are just like riveted by a college basketball game, and, and the room was just screaming. So uh, they've had their moments, and uh, they they will again, I trust. But yeah, a uh, a venerable name in the in the sport, definitely. Let me let me ask a stupid question here, as a lifelong Mormon that does does not know you know every little bit of nuts and bolts about American Catholicism, because when we're talking about Catholic basketball. Even just at Division One, that means a lot of different kind of institutions. And I learned this. I mean, I, I think I intellectually knew it, but I, I learned this from reading the book that uh, not all Catholic institutions are created equally, and they're founded by different orders, and they have different missions. And I don't know anything about any kind of beef or rivalry between the Jesuits and anybody else um, or that, that founded these these other myriad institutions. I'm, I'm curious from from your research. Did you find that there was a correlation between either basketball success or a particular kind of culture and any specific order or type of Catholic institution? Or is it fair to use the broad catch-all Catholic basketball, even though Villanova and Notre Dame and Georgetown are very different kinds of schools? Right. Uh, It's interesting because a lot of times uh, the Jesuits are uh, rightly proud of their basketball success and their prominence. And it is true that if you look at the list of all Jesuit you know, colleges and universities in the United States, a really high percentage of them have chosen, have made the decision at some point in their history to play Division One basketball. And that's not at all true of all uh, Catholic orders. So people do tend to uh, think Jesuit when they think basketball. It is Georgetown. It is Gonzaga. Uh, it's uh, of course Loyola Chicago. It's Sister Jean, and and they're very they're very proud of that identification. They they tout it at every chance they get. Um, but uh, Villanova is pretty good too, and they're not Jesuit. In fact, they've they've won two national championships pretty recently here, and uh, they're Augustinian. And there's, uh, oh, I, I can't recall the gentleman's name. He's a, he's a Jesuit priest, and he's written a good book about, about uh, the, the Jesuit order. But any, he's, he's quoted uh, in newspapers anytime, you know, Catholic teams are doing well. And the Jesuits were founded by St. Ignatius, and he has, he has kind of a backhanded compliment to Villanova. You know, well, they're as good as they can be without being Jesuit. And he said, he said something like, I'm sure St. Ignatius is rooting for all the Catholic teams, even Villanova. You know, so there's, there is some tension there between the orders, uh, but uh, they, they all have their uh, distinct missions and histories. And uh, when... Uh, when they when they do well, uh, they all rejoice. Um, when St. Peter's uh, performed miracles in this NCAA tournament, you know, I, I think I follow a, a you know Jesuit college basketball uh, social media account, and they were they were just oh praise be the sons of Saint Ignatius, you know? <laughs> the, the lads from Jersey City did it, you know. Uh, so it's cool. It, it's cool to have those uh, those those traditions and those identifiers, and there's. There's no time to hit those boards quite like March Madness. No, you're, 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 and this this exact sentence that you just said right there 
um, could not exist anywhere else, I think, within the American sports lexicon other than college basketball. That feels like an extremely like Italian so- second division Italian soccer like thought, <laughs> which 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 is fun. L- let me ask you what one last let me one last question. Brian and I have joked about this. It's, it's a popular Twitter trope that, that comes up every once in a while. That one of the great things about being a sports fan and digging into sports history is the fact that it affords us an opportunity to remember some guys. Which 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 feels wonderful, and this is one one of the joys that I had, you know, as I was reading about teams from the the eighties and, and early nineties and mid nineties, thinking like, oh yeah, I got, oh I, this person gets a, got a cup of coffee with uh, some terrible Cavs teams, and you know this person was on the Milwaukee Bucks for a little while, and and you know it's, oh you know it, it's it's fun to remember like this journeyman was actually like an amazing player at Providence or anything. I'm wondering as you get a chance to not just relive their their athletes. Um, you know, performances on the court, but, you know, get, get, learn more about their personalities and their stories and digging through there. Were there any individuals that stuck out to you as like, I'm really glad I got to remember this person that, 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 that you know, is, is memorable beyond just averaging 18 and 11 for Loyola Marymount or something? Were there, were there yeah, some, was there know, some guys was, you wanted to remember? Yeah, it wasn't so much uh, the, for me, the, the personal memories uh, I mean, I added, you know, tons of information <laughs> to my my knowledge about players that I thought I knew from my, you know, personal viewing experiences. And that was fun. But I mean, actually writing and researching the ones where I had no personal memory of it, that was equally uh, fun. And what, what comes to mind is pretty much the entire chapter on Al McGuire and Marquette. I mean, he he was just an insane quote machine in a good way. And I mean, he, he just, they just came rolling off him effortlessly. And, you know, I remember, I still remember submitting my first draft to my editor. And when we got to that chapter, you like every comment was positive. (laughs) (laughs) Amazing. You know, great. And all I was doing was quoting Al McGuire. So, uh, you know, stuff like that. Uh, The whole story about Walter Dukes, a player from the 1950s, who before I wrote this book, I, I just knew him as the record holder for for most. I knew the name, uh, and I knew the general idea. He was kind of you know Will Chamberlain, Ford Chamberlain, just an amazingly athletic you know seven foot guy uh, turned loose on 1950s basketball. But I mean, what a saga on and off the court uh, that guy had that I did my best to distill to about three pages. Um, I would have liked to have done more, um, but uh, things like that and learning, uh, you know, that during timeouts, uh, it used to be that you weren't allowed to go to the bench and confer with a coach. You just, you know, stayed out on the court and uh, drank water. You know, when did that change? Why? You know, basic questions like that. When did quarters go away? Why? Um, you know, things that are like so basic that I was always embarrassed to ask. Um, now, now I got to know. So in addition to, uh, in, you know, in my case, uh, charting the, the twists and turns of especially Gonzaga and, uh, Villanova in the early two thousands and, uh, into the, a bit of the aughts, uh, in their NCAA tournament, uh, fates, a lot of players where I was like, yeah, I remember. Okay. That, <laughs> you know, that name. Uh, early Gonzaga dynasty types, you know, wow, yeah, uh, haven't thought of those names, you know, 
for a while, uh, or uh, Villanova uh, guys from the the late the late aughts. Yes, uh, and that was a pleasure in revisiting those controversies. And uh, I hope that uh, hope that comes through uh, in the book because that was that was a fun part of doing it. I, I I'm glad that you actually mentioned both of those because if there were two parts where or two of the parts where I, I felt the most joy, not just as a reader, but also I could tell that you put joy into it, was about Al McGuire, who's somebody that I knew of and had seen pictures of, but did not fully appreciate. And I, I think if you were somebody that's not a, a diehard college basketball person, but if you were to think of people within college basketball history who would have had the most delightful Twitter account, I think this is this is probably your guy, right? Like it, it, him it, him or, or, or Jimmy V, make maybe, but it, 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 in terms of like, Somebody who saw the humanity in his players and being absolutely hilarious, like that—that's your guy. And then also, I think I—you know—you when reading this, you could tell this is some that you are somebody that that cared very deeply and knew a lot about those early two thousands, like nascent Gonzaga, Villanova programs, and um, the level of detail and joy that comes from like their you know, growing and, and, and heartbreak and getting back up again and everything. And also, cause I, I, I know I remember part of those, part of those teams too, uh, was, was, was wonderful. I've appreciated learning about 1940s, 1950s basketball, but I would, I, those were like some of the high points I think for me as a reader as well. Yeah. Al, uh, Al McGuire was uh, incredible. He was asked by, you know, one of the nation's best uh, recruits. Well, how do I know, you're still going to be, you know, coaching when I graduate. <laughs> yeah, I love this work. And he told the player that he desperately needed. He told him, "Hey, we're all born alone and we die alone." <laughs> you know, <laughs> just wouldn't engage with him at all. Uh, just a, a, a colorful character, and yeah, to uh, to see the Gonzaga miracle, you know, happen, <laughs> kind of year by year, uh, where there was just no tradition of success there before, you know, John Stockton in the 80s, notwithstanding, uh, just just an amazing uh, tale. And uh, Villanova, what they've been able to do, uh, the the same kind of uh, the same kind of uh, memory of some of the players who made it uh, possible. And uh, it was it was uh, a great joy to uh, to tell those stories. He was right. I was right. The world is run by C students. And and, and for that, we're grateful. <laughs> Brian, did you have anything else real quick? Well, I, I'd be remiss if, if we didn't uh, have John on and, and didn't turn things a little bit towards the future, I guess, and, and ask more about his, his day job there at uh, ESPN. And I, obviously, you mentioned Villanova, you mentioned Gonzaga. It seems like every you know every March we almost have that Gonzaga question of, of will they get over that that hump? But uh, a lot of a lot of conversation about the Catholic schools in particular. I mean, you you look at uh, Crichton might have a, a top ten, top fifteen team this year. I, I mean, can you can you kind of put it into perspective what you kind of see from this upcoming uh, college basketball season and, and maybe who to watch out for? Yeah, you know, Creighton played arguably the best game of any opponent against eventual national champion Kansas in the tournament, and they were down two players, yep. two key players. Uh, so uh, I, I do uh, expect them to to be tough. Uh, Gonzaga, obviously, with with Drew Timmy uh, coming back, and uh, so much talent that they always have, uh, I, I fully expect them to be at the top or really close to the top of uh, Ken Palm's laptop when he takes the curtain off of the preseason rankings. And uh, they, uh, it would be pretty amazing if they were the number one overall seed for a third consecutive year. I mean, which is, they have a shot at uh, and the pressure would continue to build. Okay. You know, 
um, prove it. Uh, ironically, they had that reputation in the early 2000s, you know, when they were, uh, people weren't saying, wow, what a miraculous plucky little school. They were saying, ah, you know, you, you keep getting the tournament and losing. And uh, I, in my day job, I very much get that every March where I'm saying, you know, Gonzaga is good. They could, uh, they could win the national championship. Oh, they never, they never do anything. Uh, so they'll, they'll carry that burden again, but they will have the, the talent to win it all. And um, I, I was just so happy that last season uh, more or less was normal. Uh, it was played. Uh, there was a full tournament. There were fans. It had been a while. And uh, this, the the book that we were speaking of came out very much in in the you know heart of the pandemic and uh in some ways that was good people were at home they needed something to do they read books um but it's as a uh, as, as a working basketball writer it's, it's fun to have normal seasons and i'm looking forward very much to another one next year i know exactly how you feel as somebody that launched a paid newsletter in the middle of a pandemic and <laughs> th there were advantages and disadvantages to that but boy this job's a lot more fun when there are people in the stands and it, it feels more like an actual college sporting event than it yeah, does a staging in an aircraft carrier. I will say, uh, to, to end this on a glass half full note, the saints were kind to me, um, right before the pandemic started, I did, I was traveling and doing in-person interviews with the you other know, subjects for the book, just like you would, you know, when there's not a pandemic. And I got to meet and talk basketball for about 90 minutes with sister Jean, which would have been, you know, absolutely unimaginable just a matter of weeks later so that that was a absolute thrill and i was happy to do uh a lot of zoom calls with other people if it meant i got to meet and sit down shake hands with sister jean she's she's remarkable um i i, I would be remiss if i did not hold this up here for everybody the book of course is miracles on the hardwood it's been on my desk here for a little bit uh the sister jean conversations also in the very beginning of the book she is not playing a bit that woman is, by God, a, a, a dyed-in-the-wool basketball fan. And played high school basketball in the 1930s. Which is significant. The, the, in San Francisco, yes. Um <laughs> If, if you know, friend, like th for me, this was like the perfect extra pointsy kind of book because it's it's got college sports history, it's got religion, it's got um, a little bit of amateur anthropology, it's got some advanced stats, it's got Al McGuire saying stupid funny things. Like, it, what more could you possibly want, um, John? It's been a pleasure having you on here. Thank you so much, and uh, and enjoy the rest of the summer, and hopefully for another exciting season ahead. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. It was a pleasure and uh, hope to do it again soon. Maybe with uh, book number two. We'll see. All right. Perfect. I would uh, I would be remiss if we didn't also quickly take an opportunity to thank our sponsor for this podcast, our dear friends at Home Field Apparel. I regret to inform you, Brian, that Home Field has done it again. Not, they have they have dropped uh, amazing collections in the recent memory here with Arizona, with Arizona State, with Clemson, with TCU, which uh, has that has been the one that's forced me to open up my wallet again after I promised I wouldn't, even though I'm trying to save a little bit of money right now because the TCU collection is absolutely fire. And then you know what they're dropping this week. 
Well, the, the the one that's really going to upset my wife in terms of when she sees the credit card bill. I think it's that 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 is you know if, if TCU is opening your wallet uh, this week with Wazoo is is definitely going to help open mine because we are all, the yep. teasing images already uh, that they've sent out and, and and the stuff is is fantastic. There's even more stuff that they they have uh, in the, in the collection. I mean it it is off the charts. And so if you are are thinking about saving up, I think this week in particular with uh, Wazoo coming to town. That that is definitely the one uh, you, you should be uh, definitely peeking on on the website for. And there's a promo code to help you out as well. When you when you finally decide to dip into your mortgage savings to buy a bunch of t-shirts and hoodies that have vintage Washington State accoutrement, which you should do because if you didn't go to UW, if you're not from Seattle. Washington State has to be one of your top four college teams, especially if you're a part of college football Twitter. Everybody loves Wazoo a little bit. Um, you should use promo code extra points. You'll save 15% off your first order, whether you're buying Washington State stuff, whether you're buying Pittsburgh stuff like I'm wearing, whether you're wearing Irvine. Playing basketball. And eaters. Appropriate for this podcast, yeah. Playing basketball. Remember, animals playing sports, always a win. Um, which we, we have frogs playing sports. We have a frog wearing a fur coat. That was Which a fantastic is, one. I mean, just, to, you know, if, if you're going through an airport, I, I guarantee if, if you put on some of this Wazoo uh, home field apparel shirts and, and you're going through an airport, I guarantee you're going to get stopped because I feel like there's no more better connection uh, across the fan base. Yeah, yeah by, by airport security, because they're going to think that you're smuggling in well, that, that might be the case. Or cheese in, in the case of Wazoo's, of course. Or cheese. Oh, the cheese is so good. Thanks, exactly. Brian Floyd, for sending us some of the cheese, by the way. Mwah. Yeah, you're right. If you're wearing Wazoo stuff in the airport, you will either be stopped by security, who will then let you go because, eh, Wazoo, or someone's going to give you fireball. That's just that's just the law of hospitality, folks. That's in the Old Testament. Go to Sunday school once in your life, right? Um, anyway, going <laughs> home field apparel, get uh, whether that's TCU, Washington State, Arizona, Clemson, any of these other uh, adorable mascots, uh, you get, get all of that stuff there at homefieldapparel.com. And if you're a school, that is not selling stuff on Home Field Apparel right now. My email is matt at extrapointsmb.com. Uh, reach out to me, as so many of you have, to get your stuff on there as well. I'll be happy to put you in touch with the folks at Home Field. Uh, and if you would like to advertise uh, on Going for Two and have us shill for your thing, like we shill for Home Field all of the time, the email is sales at extrapointsmb.com. It is not as expensive as you might think. Uh, Brian, this has been a wonderful conversation. Uh, I must be honest with you, feeling a little woozy after all of this talking. Uh, I don't know if I need to give myself more B vitamins or more hydration or or take a nap or whatever. But um, I do want to wrap this up. You can uh, subscribe to the show uh, uh, anywhere you get your podcasts. Uh, it, it's, it's twice a week now. We're going to shift to a once a week model in July. Kind of see how that goes as we try to do a play experiment with the with the going for two extra points publishing schedule in July. You can find the D1 ticker, uh, which is free, that uh, publishes twice a day, gives you every single headline in the college sports world to keep you up to date. And of course, find our extra videos on Collegiate Sports Connect, whether you're in the industry or not, for all of our, our myriad interviews. Brian has a bunch on there. Our colleagues have a bunch. I have not done it as much recently, but I will have some more coming this week. I'm excited to do one about Boise State Beach Volleyball. We have one coming up about the College Football Hall of Fame and one at the end of the week with uh, the University of Hartford and their transition to Division Three. 
You can find all of those on Collegiate Sports Connect. Brian, have I neglected the, the, the pub anything? No, I think that's it. And uh, again, if you're listening to this, uh, make sure you give us five stars on whatever app allows you to rate and review. And obviously, you're hopefully you're subscribed as well. But, uh, you know, that does definitely help others discover this podcast and uh, help get other guests like uh, like John. And uh, not only to promote their book, but have interesting conversations like we just had. And uh, plenty more to come, especially as we kind of get into uh, we, have, we have the NACTA convention coming up that we, we hopefully will be able to have uh, have you there in person, uh, if, if not uh, uh, meeting a ton of industry ADs and, and other folks uh, as, as everybody kind of gathers there in Las Vegas. A lot of interesting conversations from that will be on Collegiate Sports Connect ND1. So uh, be sure you're following along because uh, we got a lot of great great stuff headed your way. I, I hope I'm at NACTA too. If I'm not there, all of my coworkers will be there. I'm sure it'll be wonderful. What, what you'll, you'll learn a lot. There'll be a ton of great videos. We're crossing our fingers here that I will no longer have a viral load, uh, which is that's kind of a gross thing to end a podcast on, but I hope, hopefully I'm feeling better enough to be able to get it on an airplane. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll end with that. In the meantime, thanks everybody. Uh, appreciate your readership. Appreciate you listening. Buy John's book. Subscribe to our stuff. We'll see you on the internet soon.